0: So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit.
1: I mean, do you not find it helpful when facing a challenge or some adversity that's before you? Do you not find it helpful to have a mentor to guide you, a, a coach to instruct you, or, or someone to kind of motivate you? I mean, when you consider the Christian life and living faithfully this Christian life set before us, I mean, isn't it helpful to have... Friends to strengthen you. That's the way I look at you, the church, the saints of today that were to encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And yet it's also the saints of yesterday that can encourage us in the faith. So as most of you know, every year I do one sermon on um, a man or a woman uh, of faith that has impacted both the church and the world. I I do this for a number of reasons. I think, first, that it's scriptural. I think I'm just following the logic of Paul, who in Romans 15, 4 says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, uh, we might have hope. In other words, when you read in the Old Testament, you read the stories of Joseph, and you read the stories of Jacob, you're kind of encouraged in your faith to be faithful by their lives. So I think it's scriptural. I think it's pastoral. I mean, you see the weaknesses of people used by God to accomplish good things. You identify with people and their weaknesses, and you think, well, God can use me. And I also think it's instructive. When we look back at the saints of old, we begin to see God's grace splashed across the pages of history, and we begin to see God move as he does across all generations and places. And it helps us to overcome that warning that C.S. Lewis gives about chronological snobbery, that every generation thinks that because they're the last generation, they know the most. And yet, history gives us a perspective. It helps us to understand our own times. So, the, the man that we'll be speaking about today is Charles W. Colson. Now, if you're over 55, you probably know that name. If you're under 55, you may not know be familiar with that name. But he had a meteoric rise in politics. I mean, he became the special counsel to the 37th president of the United States. And yet, from these dizzying heights of the Oval Office, he crashed and burned. I mean, he fell from those heights, becoming a a felon, convicted criminal prisoner. It's an incredible story. Uh, you don't. Many of you take notes. You don't have to. I'll send you my notes if you want. And, and where I got the information that I'll give you is just two books: Charles Colson, "Born Again," hence John 3. This is his kind of. This is a book I read just coming to faith. He wrote it back in about 74. Uh, just coming to faith, I read this. It's a great book. And then Charles Colson, Jonathan Aiken. I'd love to tell you more about him. He's a British parliamentarian who fell from grace in a similar way, being convicted of perjury. In the British government, in 1999, Coulson reached out to him. He came to faith through Coulson's ministry. It's quite a redemption, story of redemption. So we have a great story before us, a story of redemption. A convicted felon ends up writing 30 books, selling over 5 million copies, starts a prison ministry that becomes the largest in the world, had a radio show, uh, that would reach millions every day for years, faithful. It's a story of great redemption. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about his life just briefly, and then I'm going to move into some lessons. Lessons that though his life has passed, the lessons remain really instructive and can be very helpful for us to finish well. So I hope you sit back and just enjoy the grace of God in the life of this saint. So he's born in 1931, October 16, Boston, Massachusetts. His parents were of both British and Swedish stock. Um, He was raised in modest means, but ended up going to Brown University, graduating with honors, was a champion debater. Uh, You see a little bit of his disdain for convention. He had a full ride to Harvard, and he turned his nose up to it, and went to Brown instead. He then fulfilled his ROTC commitment uh, by joining the Marines for a number of years, went to George, uh, town, or George Washington University Law School, which he graduated with honors. And then in the next 10 years of his life, he gets married, has three children, gets divorced, and then gets remarried, and he remains married to that wife uh, until the end of his life. But that's not where I want to focus. I want to focus on his law and political career because I think that's where, if you know him and if you've heard of him, you know that's where he attained his fame. He starts out in law, wildly successful, establishes offices both in Boston and in Washington, D.C. He had always been involved in politics, since he was 15 was his first campaign that he joined. Well, he rose up the ranks, Nixon administration, of course, brings him on in 1969. He raises up the ranks quickly to the special counsel of the president. He's got the president's ear. He is a confidant, a personal friend, This is pretty heady stuff for a guy that is self confessed, arrogant, proud, you know, full of competitive juices. He's got the president's ear. Well, his task as a counsel to the president was to be securing lobbyist support. He'd deal with industrialists, organized labor, veterans, farmers, and and so forth. But what what was known about Colson was he was a master of getting things done in bureaucracy. In fact, he loved hearing the president say, get Colson, he'll get it done. And that's how he began to be understood, that, that the end will always justify the means, victory at all costs. In fact, David Plotz, who is a writer for Slate magazine, said that Colson was the evil genius of an evil administration. Even um, Haldeman, the chief of staff, called Coulson... Nixon's hit man, because what he'd do is he authored a list of those political enemies to Richard Nixon, and they would do smear campaigns to undermine these people and their positions. In fact, he himself called himself the hatchet man. He was Nixon's hatchet man, ruthless getting things done. One time, he said it was a joke, but people doubted it. He said, I'll walk over my grandmother to get Richard Nixon Elected. I, I want you to understand, he was a nasty character. When at all costs, he had no moral compass. His morality was up for grabs to get the job done. This is what Newsweek wrote about his influence in D.C. on September 6, 1971. When the president walked from the Oval Office to the helipad to begin his trip, the figure talking rapidly into his left ear at every step of the way was Chuck Colson. Washington hostesses have begun to reckon with his name. The mere, nem- the mere mention of it makes tensions come in like a sheet of rain. So he was, he, was, he, was a, he was a dirty character, and they knew it. He was effective, but he was nasty at it. Well, most of us know Colson, at least from his suspected involvement in Watergate. Now, for those of you who don't know, Watergate is the name of an attempted break-in on June 17, 1972. Uh, Watergate was actually a complex, an apartment complex, but it was also the, uh, the Democratic Party Committee headquarters. There was an attempted break-in. Well, of course, evidence would ultimately link Richard Nixon with that break-in, leading to his resignation. But it's in the midst of that fallout that Colson resigned from his White House position he re-entered his law practice. But that's where the story really picks up steam at that point. Because I want you to understand the feel. And for those of you who are alive, I remember it. Uh, I was young, but I remember it. It was, it, was, it was the news every day, all day long. It was about Watergate, Watergate, appointing special counsels, grand juries, indictments going out. And, and Coulson was feeling greater and greater pressure over his involvement in it. Well, he takes this trip up to Booth Bay Harbor, Maine for vacation just to get away from the pressure of Washington. And it was then that he stopped in at a man's house, Tom Phillips. Tom Phillips was the president of Raytheon Corporation, which was the biggest corporation at the time in New England. Uh, Raytheon was a client of Colson's, but also a friend. And he had met Tom before and was warned that Tom Phillips had A religious experience and to just be aware of it well he goes and pays him a visit doesn't even know why he is doing it but just impelled to go pay him a visit and they spend the evening on this porch where Tom begins to share his testimony he begins to explain to Colson how empty his life was and here's what he said he said and he had everything a big job a lot of press a lot of money the houses, the boats, everything. He says, I didn't seem to have anything that mattered. It was all on the surface. All the material things in life were meaningless if one hadn't discovered what was underneath of them." Uh, so, so he was just explaining how empty his life was. And then he told Colson that while he was in New York on business, he actually went to a Billy Graham crusade in Madison Square Garden. And there he understood Jesus Christ for the first time. And here's what he says. He says, "I've accepted." So he's telling Colson this on their porch. "I've accepted Jesus Christ. I've committed my life to Him, and it's been the most wonderful experience of my whole life." So he, now Colson, he says, he's curious because he respects the man, but he's confused. Well, how do you have a commitment with a person who's been dead for two thousand years? So Phillips just reads a chapter from C.S. Lewis's book, *Mere Christianity*, and, and here's what the party read. And and they had been talking about the dirtiness of the White House and the efforts they were making, and why did you have to do this much effort? You would have have won the election anyways. He says, he quotes Lewis, he says, There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. So at the end of the night, uh, Phillips walks him to the door. He offers to pray with him, read scripture to him, and then he walks him to the door and he gives Coulson this book. Now, uh, what Phillips did not realize is that when he read that chapter and had that conversation, Coulson was cut to the quick. He said, my defenses were down. My bravado was shot. In fact, Coulson got out of his car was going back inside to want to ask Tom about a relationship with Christ, and he saw the lights going off in the house. So he got back in his car, and as he began to drive away, he started weeping so uncontrollably that he had to pull over. And and he he ended up cupping in his face in his hands, leaning against the steering wheel, just weeping over his life. It was the first time he prayed. He said, Lord Jesus, he says, um, God, I don't know how to find you. And he repeated over and over, take me. And this is huge. This is Colson, This is whatever part of the eye, whatever side of the aisle. This is a Trump. This is a Clinton. This is a major player in politics breaking down over the gospel. It's incredible. Well, he takes the book, and for the rest of his vacation, he reads it. And like a good attorney, he says, is God real? Does God exist? Pros, cons. And he begins plowing through C.S. Lewis' book. Uh, but by Friday morning, here's what he writes. He says, Lord Jesus, I believe you. I accept you coming into my life. I commit my life to you. With this prayer came strength, serenity, hope, assurance for life. He is, his circumstances had not changed one iota. His life completely had. When he returns to D.C., he begins to seek forgiveness from those people with whom he played those dirty tricks. He began to ask forgiveness. He began to lose the bitterness that he had of these enemies of Richard Nixon. He didn't want to play the special lieutenant of Nixon anymore. He began to pray with a group of Democrats and Republican senators and congressmen each Monday morning. Well, of course, you can imagine, once the press got a hold of this, it was a field day. Art Buckwald was a humorist at the time, and he writes this parody of Coulson and his grandmother. And so he, he kind of speaks to how they would converse with one another if uh, he imagined kind of this prayer session happening. And so he writes, Shall we kneel together, Mr. Colson asked. He's asking his grandmother. And she says, Not me, she said. I haven't been able to kneel since you screamed at me. Four, years, four more years, and then you put your Oldsmobile into drive. Uh, people were just having a heyday with him. One syndicated columnist, Harriet Van Horne, said, I cannot accept the sudden coming to Christ of Charles Colson. If he isn't embarrassed by this sudden excess of piety, then surely the Lord is. I mean, they could not believe it. So I want you to feel that dichotomy between his life and now this conversion to Christ. Well, that was back in 73. Wheels of justice continue to turn as they always do. On March, on March 1, one, seventy four, Colson was indicted for obstruction of justice for his role, not in the Watergate, but in his role to destroy the character of a man by the name of uh, Daniel Ellsberg. This is a, a related but different issue. Uh, he leaked the Pentagon Papers. This was a paper on the Vietnam War, brought shame on the Vietnam War, and he leaked those to the press, and so Colson was going after him to destroy his credibility so he wouldn't be useful in court. So he pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice to that. He was sentenced to one to three years to serve in Maxwell Correctional Facilities, a prison in Alabama. This is incredible. The man having the ear of the most powerful man of the world, is now in a prison facility in Alabama. Well, while in prison, uh, everybody encouraged him, you'll make it through, just mind your own business, don't get involved with anybody. But as a Christian, he couldn't, he had to be involved. And so he began Bible studies, he began prayer groups, he began to help other prisoners with their legal issues. And really, there was a minor revival in that prison. But it was in that prison that he felt the call of God. He saw himself as a prisoner, now understanding prisoners, and now he can begin to serve them. And he likened it to Christ. He says, just as God felt it necessary to become man to help his children, could it be that I had to become a prisoner to better understand the suffering and deprivations? There is a purpose for my being here, perhaps a mission the Lord has called me to. Now, that, he's released, and, and by 76, within about a year and a half of release, he begins prison fellowship. That would grow to become the world's largest ministry to prisoners. It's now, by 79, it went international. Now it's in 120 different countries, ministering to hundreds of thousands of prisoners. Uh, this biographer, Aiken said that he transferred his huge drive, his intellect, his maniacal energy, from the service of Richard Nixon to the service of Jesus Christ, and he did. And then for 39 years, he continued to minister, not just in Prison Fellowship, he started Justice Fellowship, was trying to get restorative justice in the prisons. He helped start Angel Tree. Angel Tree was a ministry that exists to give presents around Christmas time to the children of prisoners. He started Breakpoint. He wrote many, many books, many books. Loving God, perhaps you've read, Born Again, that I referenced, but also How Now Shall We Live, and many other books that are just excellent books to read. I encourage them to you. But what I want you to see is was faithful for 39 years until his death on August 21, 2012. So, so, so what do we do with a life like this? This is a life that was lived, that was changed by God's grace. How can we profit from that life? Well, let me give you a few lessons. And um, I pray that you take them to heart, that you think about it. Uh, speak with your spouse or a good friend about it. Ask, how do you see these in my life? Or do you see that I may need to move toward these? So don't just be a hearer but let's be hearing and doing. So we're not foolish like the man who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. So first, uh, pride will blind you and will destroy you. Now, to the wise, Proverbs says, pride goes before destruction in a haughty spirit before the fall. His his life is a testimony of this truth. In fact, one line from mere Christianity that stuck with him from this chapter 8, of uh, book three of, of Amir Christianity He says, pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. I mean, you can't read the book without just feeling like, you don't like the guy. He is so arrogant. He's so full of himself. He's so proud. It was offensive to read the beginning of the book. He really did a good job portraying who he was. You know, but here he is, so full of pride. And boy, that crash and burn. He's dining with the president on the president's yacht, sailing down the Potomac, and he ends up washing men's underwear in a laundry facility in the correctional facility in Alabama. That's a big fall. But it was that fall that opened his eyes, that clarified him that the nature of sin is not simply in what you do. It's actually inside of you. You know, Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a man. He understood that pride, Was the crime of the heart. Do you understand this? You know, as Christians, we're often taught about moral reformation. These are the things you have to change to become a Christian. There is a world of eternity that is separated from changing your life and doing some outward moral reformation and understanding that the problem is right here, it's right here. It's the greatest of sin. I would challenge you. You can, I checked today, I just Googled great sin. C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. It'll pop up in a PDF. You can read it. It's a short chapter. It is amazing to remind you. Without understanding that, we don't need to be born again. We just need to be instructed. But no, God says you have to be born again. The heart of stone has to be taken out. The heart of flesh has to be put in. That's why Charles Spurgeon writes, The demon of pride was born with us, and it will not die one hour before us. So it's there. We've got to know it, and we've got to fight it. So that's the first thing, pride blinds and destroys. Secondly, genuine conversions are sloppy. When you read this book, you're going to realize this guy had fits and starts, just like us. He started out great. He takes two steps back. People were criticizing him. Hey, you come to Christ, but look at what you're doing over here. And here's what he says. I had accepted and fervently believed certain truths, and yet I was a hardly transformed person. All I could possibly say was that I was seeking, searching, trying, learning, failing, falling short, recovering, and continuing to try, all the time reaching for a relationship with Christ. So, so it's messy when you read about his life. He's got some funny things he's saying about prayer and healing and all these different things. But as you read his writing, as he gets more mature in the faith, you see things being clarified, being sharpened, being just maturing. So let's remember that conversions, particularly for those who are new in the faith, there's going to be fits and starts. That's just the way it works. But it's still real. Third, faith has proven over the years. Genuine conversions do last. Right? So the mockery that he experienced, everybody just just pummeled him, saying, Ah, oh, you're trying to get a reduced term, you're trying to get out of jail time. It's just a, it's just a jailhouse conversion. But remember now, he believed before going into jail. In fact, that's what propelled him into jail. He says this. He said, I had to pay the price to complete the shedding of my old life and to be free to live the new. He knew that if he did not suffer for that sin, that it would hamper his going forward and his work for Christ. But what I want you to see is that his 39 years revealed the reality of his faith. We're so quick to give assurance to people. Before the faith has begun to mature. And what I did was I read the obits in the Washington Post over his death. They, they just pummeled him when he was convicted. But they were glowing about his life at the end. It's hard to deny the reality of the gospel after 39 years of faithfulness. Perseverance is revealed over time. Fourth. The gospel creates a unity and diversity. This is pretty profound. We know that central to the gospel is that God has reconciled men and women to himself through faith in Christ. But we know, too, that the gospel reconciles men and women to one another. There is to be a unity among our diversity. So we don't have to be a bunch of lookalikes. We don't have to be the same way. We just have to be gathered around the gospel. Well, you see this in his life because when he came back to Washington as a Christian, And the news went out, so Doug Coe was an evangelist in D.C., and he gathered this senator from Iowa, a liberal Democratic senator who was a Christian, and he had him meet Chuck Colson for dinner. This would be, and and he, Harold Hughes, not Howard Hughes, Harold Hughes from Iowa, Harold Hughes, he was on the hit list. And so they had dinner together. And this is what he says after dinner. Harold asked Colson, They tell me that you have had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Would you tell me about it? After sharing sharing how he came to see Jesus, who he was, and his great need for him, so he gave his testimony, he then ended saying, As a new Christian, I have everything to learn. I know that. This is Colson talking now. I'm grateful for any help you can give me. Well, after that, nobody in the room said anything. They couldn't believe it. Suddenly, Harold lifted up both of his hands in the air, brought him down on his knees, he said, that's all I need to know. Chuck, you've accepted Christ, and he's forgiven you. I do the same. I love you now as a brother in Christ. I will stand with you, defend you anywhere, and trust you with everything I have. This, isn't, was it, this wasn't a cliche. Harold Hughes remained with him. They prayed together every Monday. These, these, this was so phenomenal at the time. Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes did a segment on it. This is incredible. And, and not only that, but all these men in his prayer group, they went to the judge that convicted Colson and said, we will finish his present time because his family had come into a rough patch and they wanted him to be released and they would serve his time. These are people who are ideologically opposed, antithetical to him. Now you think about the power of the gospel bringing them together. So then we've got to ask ourselves, why do we struggle with agreeing on Christian music and Christian education, and should I wear a mask or not? I mean, if these two can come together and be united in the gospel and let everything melt around them and focus on Christ, we've got a lot to learn from that. It's a powerful gospel that unites people of great diversity. Okay, fifth, and quickly, power is fleeting. These were power brokers of the time. They were at the top of the world of power. These names, Nixon, Dean, Haldeman, Attorney, John Mitchell, Chuck Colson. Nobody knows them. They're gone. See you later. They used to cause fear? Not anymore. It's purported that Charles de Gaulle, the French leader, said that, you know, the cemetery is filled with indispensable men. These were indispensable men. Not really. They're all gone. You know, just remember the nature that the administration we have now, the one before, the one after, they're passing. They're just passing. God remains fixed and firm. As you think about Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Rome. Where are those great kingdoms now? They're no more. And yet the church remains. So, so power is fleeting. We don't put our hope in governments. We, don't, we, we work. We are good citizens. And we use the means that God gives to us. We never trust in them. Okay, six. Troubles occupy every generation. Many of us think our days were running on a razor's edge. We're just about to fall off and tumble into oblivion. Every generation thinks they're experiencing the worst thing. I want to remind you here, because it was shocking to me, even though I lived through it. This was a horrible time. Sixty-nine governmental officials were charged. Forty-eight were convicted. The president resigned. The vice president, Maryland's own governor, thank you very much, Spiro Agnew, he resigned. The chief of staff, two former attorneys general resigned. The Ch- Chuck Coles, it was a clearinghouse. We had race riots, if you remember. We had Vietnam protests. And we had a Cold War that we thought at any day we're going to be getting in war with Soviet Union. Now, I'm not saying that our days aren't significant. I'm just saying they're not unique. They're not unique. So we, the Christian isn't like Chicken Little. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. We don't operate that way. God's sovereign over these things. We rest. He sits in the heavens and he does as he pleases. And he knows us by our names. He knows the number of hairs on our head. So we can rest, even though we're in troubling times. We don't panic. We live by faith. God brings beauty from ashes. You can't have a better but God example. You think Chuck Colson? Never in the world will he come to faith but God. God can make alive that which is dead. And he did. So many of us have friends. We have family. They're too far gone. They've lived in darkness too long. They can't be saved. God's arm is not too short. You may have a child that you think will never return. You may have an adult that you think, a parent that will never turn. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. If he can change this man, God is holding him up as a trophy of grace for us. He gives us an example. He said, I showed you my power to save even the nastiest or the most lost or the most uninterested. God can save. And then last, evangelism is the means of God's salvation. I I want to just have you think about this for a minute. God saved Chuck Colson, a human, through another human. He could have done it any way he wanted to, but God saves through us, the believers. So Tom Phillips he was a president. He was a trained theologian. He didn't take apologetics classes. He didn't go to EE. E. He didn't know all the answers for all the questions that can be asked. He didn't. He just said, you know, what? my life was empty. I've met Jesus Christ. He's changed me. He's forgiven me. I've put my faith in him. I'm going to live for him. And you know what God did? God landed on Colson with a 1,000 pounds of bricks. God did the work, but he used a willing human to simply say, this is what God has done for me. The Gadarene demoniac, when he was healed, he wanted to follow Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 5? He said, just go to your hometown tell them what God did for you. Just tell them what God did for you. God will do the rest, but he he uses us. So so I I want you to leave this idea of who Colson was. This whole story was really in many ways predicated on the faithfulness of one man. There were more players, no doubt. Spirit of God saved. But one man was obedient to just say, let me tell you what the Lord's done for me. So you read the book and you begin to realize, wow, maybe I can affect change, eternal change in the lives of other people. So his life has passed, but the lessons remain the same for us. So let's just take a moment now and ask God for grace. I'm only going to give really like a nano moment. Uh, But just to consider this, ask God that there's one lesson. And if you want my notes, I'll send them to you. Just email me, and I'll pray for us in just a moment.